This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. Good afternoon, I'm Libby Snymer. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. If you're going to feed a population expected to be at least 9 billion people in the middle of the century, you really need the oceans to be playing a big part of that. That's Andy Sharpless, the CEO of Oceana, an organization devoted to saving the world's oceans and now to also promote sustainable eating. He'll tell us how switching to wild fish may just be the answer to solving many of the world's problems. If you think of life as a job, by the time you're our age, you feel like you've finally gotten competent at it. Plus, the popular American journalist and Pulitzer Prize winner Anna Quindlen will drop by to talk about her new memoir, Lots of Candles, Plenty of Cake. He writes the songs, and it's his birthday. Today, we'll celebrate Barry Manilow with some of his great music. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's a move that's bucking global trends. Over the past few months, we've seen many countries, including Canada, raise their age of retirement. However, France is set to lower its minimum retirement age from 62 to 60. The move was initiated by the new French president, François Hollande, who won last month's election by strongly standing against many of France's austerity measures. The age of retirement had previously been raised from 60 to 62. Now the new retirement age of 60 will only apply to citizens who entered the workforce at 18 years of age and have contributed to pension plans for a long enough period of time. The retirement age for everyone else regardless of how long they've been paying into the system, will be lowered from 67 to 65. For a long time, the right to retire at 60 was seen as a pillar of France's social benefit system. There's been a major decision in Britain that will hopefully see many more elderly patients getting the treatments they deserve. Starting in October, there will be a ban preventing doctors from refusing to treat patients based on age alone. If elders feel they're being discriminated against, they'll have the right to sue. This law comes into effect as a result of nationwide complaints that many elderly have received inconsistent treatment and are being ignored or mistreated by caregivers. Paul Burstow, the care minister, said the new law would ensure that health and care workers had the right attitude to help Britain's aging society. There's a bit of good news if you're looking to buy a home in one of Canada's major cities, but bad news if you're getting ready to sell. TD Bank's latest real estate forecast suggests that the housing markets in Toronto and Vancouver are likely to fall by about 15% over the next two to three years. The bank says the drop in prices will be gradual, unlike the drastic decreases we've seen south of the border, and Canada's real estate market won't suffer a serious crash. 
And finally, since it's Father's Day, do you men know how much your chores actually contribute to the household? Well, a new study by Insurance.com studied the tasks that men and women both do around the house and applied an average salary to both of them. The result? No surprise, women would earn a lot more. The average man would earn just over $20,000 a year for the work he performs around the house, while the woman would pull in three times as much at $60,000. So while today is Father's Day and your time to relax while your family pampers you, tomorrow you might want to think about checking a few more things off the honey-do list. I'm Libby's Nimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. She became famous in the 1980s for her New York Times column that chronicled her generation, baby boomers, as they juggled careers and families. After 20 years of devoting herself to fiction, Pulitzer Prize winner Anna Quinlan has returned to the age-related memoir. This time she's writing about the Zoomer years. I chatted with her when she was in town to promote Lots of Candles, Plenty of Cake. Nice to meet you, Anna Quinlan, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Why did you decide to write about this time of life? Two moments came together to make me think that maybe I had a book. Um, The first was when I was writing my last Newsweek column in 2009. I discovered that the average life expectancy in 1952, which is the year I was born, was 68 which I thought was astonishing, that we'd gained about 12 to 13 years just during my lifetime. And then, as I say in the book, um, over the summer, uh, there was a tornado at our house in the country, and my daughter called me very upset that something might have happened to me. And I said to her without thinking, oh, honey, I'm too old to die young now. That combined with our added life expectancy, an entire stage of life that we've gained just during my lifetime um, might make a good basis for a memoir. When I first started to talk about doing this book, everyone I mentioned it to acted like I was writing about some terrible disease. And then when I pushed back and said, all right, so I understand you're 64 and you were much happier when you were 30, everyone would say, oh, no, that's not true at all. I, I actually really like my life now. I feel I feel more at peace with myself. I feel more at home in my skin. I love what my life has amounted to. And I realized that there was this great societal construct that said we were supposed to say that getting older was terrible. But in fact, if you took it down to the individual level, most people of about my age felt the way I did, which was that things were pretty terrific. You talked about a whole new phase. So how do you define that phase? Well, I'm not sure I can define it. And too often, I'm afraid, inevitably, we define it in opposition to those who have gone before us. So, for example, when my grandmother was 60, she looked completely different than I look now. And she lived in a completely different way. She thought of herself as elderly. I not only don't think of myself as elderly, I don't think of myself as old. Maybe I think of myself as older or something of the sort. We don't really have nomenclature yet because we're still getting used to the idea that people are continuing to work, that people are continuing to work out, that people are traveling and volunteering and having a great time and doing yoga and all those things that we now take for granted that 60-somethings do. But that are quite different from what they did, say, two or three generations ago. 
what else do you think has to change? Because not only has the way we age changed, but we are also the largest generation in history that's doing this. Well, and I know, and that's why we're getting to set the agenda at some level. And I'm sympathetic if people are a little tired of the baby boomers. I mean, first we were saying everybody should be young, and then we were saying everybody should raise children a certain way, and now we're saying everyone should honor aging. But the truth of the matter is when you have this huge demographic bump in any society, they are going to change the way we see things. We set up in the United States 65 as a retirement age and some sense as a mandatory retirement age, or at least in some businesses, an age at which you could begin to draw your social security and your your senior health benefits. That made sense when people only lived to be 68, for example. Maybe it doesn't make as much sense today. I don't know. If you're going to live into your 90s and stop working at 65, I don't know how you make that work. Well, but the other question mm-hmm. is, if so many of us in our 60s decide that we don't want to give up work, either because we can't afford it or in many cases because we love working, where does that leave younger people? I mean, we create a kind of a bottleneck in the workplace, certainly in leadership positions, that didn't exist up until this point. And we have to start thinking about what that tells 20 and 30-somethings about their ability to get jobs and to progress through those jobs. And do you, there is, you know, a certain way of thinking that there is, in fact, a war between the generations. Do you hold with that? I don't see any sense of that. I mean, the younger people I know are just trying to get started in their lives the way I was when I was in my 20s. Maybe I have a more benign view because I have three children in their 20s, um, and I don't feel like they're at war with my friends. In fact, they're quite fond of them. They do feel, however, that there used to be a natural progression of people in and out of the workplace that doesn't take place anymore um, among the baby boom generation. So the book is called Lots of Candles and Plenty of Cake. And what do you personally uh, find to celebrate about this time of life? Oh, I think this is a fantastic time of life for so many people. I mean, your kids are launched. Lots of us have great relationships with our kids, but we don't have that day-to-day that can be so overwhelming. We've sort of put our jobs in their proper place in the spectrum of our lives, We still have a lot of the same friends, and we get to see a lot more of them. And for women particularly, I think there's a sense that we don't really care anymore what anybody thinks of us. So what is your message to people who are about to embark on what we call the Zoomer years? (laughs) I mean, I think this can be a really wonderful and a really exciting time because, as I say in the book, if you think of life as a job, By the time you're our age, you feel like you've finally gotten competent at it. And that's a terrific feeling from which to move forward and to understand that there might be less of your future than there is of your past, but there's still a lot of it given uh, the actuarial charts today. Okay. Anna Quinlan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Lots of Candles, Plenty of Cake is published by Random House. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. How often do you eat fish? Many of us have been including it in our diets for an abundance of health reasons. But have you thought about where the fish on your plate comes from? My next guest, Oceana's Andy Sharpless, will tell us why eating wild fish is food for thought when it comes to solving global hunger. 
You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. It's a shocking statistic. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization says that by the middle of the century, the world will have to produce 70% more food to meet the needs of the exploding population. How to do that? According to the nonprofit group Oceana, the answer is wild fish. And if we save the oceans, we'll feed the world. CEO Andrew Sharpless made his case at Idea City this week, and I talked to him just before his presentation. Andrew Sharpless, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you. Andrew, you say that making the oceans sustainable is the key to solving the world's hunger problem. Please explain. You know, oceans, the wild fish in the oceans provide as much animal protein as eggs. And they do it without taking any land, without using fresh water, without producing large amounts of greenhouse gas emissions like livestock, terrestrial livestock does. And they're actually the most cost-efficient, and they do it naturally. So if you're going to feed a population expected to be at least 9 billion people in the middle of the century, you really need the oceans to be playing a big part of that. Mm-hmm. And not to mention that fish is also extremely healthy. You're right. It's, um, the medical literature shows when you shift from red meat in particular to to fish, you get reductions in cancer and obesity and heart disease that are measurable. So I, I think you can make the argument that this is the perfect protein. The problem, obviously, is overfishing. Uh, g- give us a little background in terms of how much overfishing there has been in the last few decades. About 1988, unfortunately, the world's wildfish catch peaked. And despite increasing effort and increasing use of technology by the world's big commercial fishing fleets, they haven't been able to catch the fish. And we're all, you've heard of peak oil. Well, we're, you know, we're over peak fish. The acute driver of ocean collapse is overfishing. And um, it's too much fishing by big industrial fleets taking too many fish out of the, of the ocean too fast. The good news there is that that's a fixable problem. How so? How do you fix it? Well, fishery managers around the world do three things. They set scientifically-based quotas, they protect nursery habitat, and they reduce bycatch. Bycatch is the accidental killing of the fish or the other you know, marine creatures you're not targeting. Uh, the wonderful thing about ocean conservation is that fish come back fast if you'll do these three basic things, quotas, habitat, and bycatch. It's not like waiting 100 years for the rainforest to return. Fish, many of them, uh, produce eggs by the millions. And if you'll give them a little bit of help, they're incredibly prolific and powerful and resilient uh, part of life. And we can see in the water uh, rebound, you know, see more fish in the water uh, in a 5- or 10-year period uh, in most fisheries. The most most important parts of the ocean for the goal we have in mind of you know making them productive and abundant are under national jurisdiction. The coastal countries of the world took control out to 200 nautical miles of their oceans. And so that means that they set the rules for quotas, habitat, and bycatch. They don't have to do it by negotiating with other countries or going to the United Nations. They do it as a national decision. If you make a list of the coastal countries of the world by the size of their catch... And you ask the question, 
if I'm able to convince the top 10 countries in the world that have the biggest ocean fish catches to do a good job on quotas, habitat, and bycatch, how much of the world's fish catch could I make sustainable and productive and abundant? And the answer is 53%. What about fish farming? Why is it bad? Mostly fish farms are farming fish that eat fish. If you're doing that, and salmon eat fish, tuna eat fish, then what you're doing is feeding wild fish that are caught and ground up into little pellets, kind of like dog food. And you're converting at least four pounds of wild fish into one pound of farm fish. You're not actually reducing the pressure on the wild fishery. You're actually creating a huge and voracious customer for wild fish. And you're reducing the amount of wild marine protein that ends up being fed to people. So what else can we, the consumers, do? You need to get active in terms of your, your role as a citizen. And you need to press Find out who is setting the quotas, who is responsible for managing the commercial fishing fleets, you know, rules on habitat protection and, and bycatch and quotas, and let them know that you're watching and that you care and that you want them to be setting those rules so that the oceans will be abundant and productive and provide lots of jobs and lots of food forever. So get involved as a citizen. Learn about which fish are abundant. When you're buying fish, make sure you try to buy the ones that are abundant. Those are the two key things. Okay. Andrew Sharpless, thanks so much. My pleasure. To find out more about the benefits of wild fish, visit Oceana.org. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. It's Barry Manilow's birthday, and in just a moment, we'll celebrate with some of his great music. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Today is Barry Manilow's birthday. The famous singer, songwriter, and producer is 69 years old. As a musician, his first big break came in the 1960s when he worked as a commercial jingle writer. You might recognize some of his famous jingles. I'm stuck on being a stuck on me. And... And like a good neighbor... And that's why they stay. In the early 70s, Barry Manilow worked with Bette Midler as her pianist, musical arranger, and producer of her first two albums. Then, in 1974, he finally released an album of his own. It was self-titled and contained his first hit, Could It Be Magic? He followed it up with another album, Barry Manilow 2, which featured his first song to reach the number one spot on the charts, Mandy. From then on, he was a star. He wrote hit song after hit song. There are too many good ones to choose from, so here's a special montage of the music of Barry Manilow to celebrate his 69th birthday.
some of Barry Manilow's big hits. He turns 69 today. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for being here today. Next week, do you recognize the signs of a stroke? June is Stroke Awareness Month, and Dr. Frank Silver will tell you exactly what you need to know to protect yourself and your loved ones. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing and Sun Life Financial. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.